0: Hello everybody and welcome to the American Shoreline podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, there are a lot of challenges on the American shoreline. Tons of issues coming, climate change isn't helping, uh, communities facing the risks of sea level rise and increasing storms, whether you're in the Gulf of Mexico, the Atlantic, or out on the west coast. And there are some new organizations that are taking shape to tackle these complex problems. Uh, We need our best minds and our best people working together. And we're gonna be talking about that today with one of the leaders of a new institute at the University of California Santa Barbara campus.
1: Yeah, you know, uh, Peter, uh, when, way back when we started, you had this notion of uh, the pelagic-minded, uh, which, <laughs> yes. which, which is kind of this big scale being able to see outside your silo, you might say. I think so. And I think uh, that Dr. Charles Lester is uh, such an individual, and I'm looking forward to talking to him. As well am I. Uh, ladies and
0: gentlemen, we're going to be talking today to Dr. Charles Lester, Director of the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center a reinvigorated institute at the University of California, Santa Barbara. It is part of the Marine Science Institute, the famed Marine Science Institute that's been in existence for about 50 years at the university. And uh, we're going to learn all about the kind of issues that uh, Dr. Lester and his team will be tackling at the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center at the UC Santa Barbara campus.
1: Looking forward to it, Peter. But first, let's have a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to check out their brand new Coastal Resilience Department, headed up by ASPN's own Peter Ravella. Find them at LJA. Dot com. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast Newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at Chloe at That's C H L O E at CoastalNewsToday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show.
0: Well, Dr. Charles Lester, welcome to the American Shoreline podcast, and thank you for taking time out to speak with our listeners about the work that you're doing out in, on the
1: California coast.
2: Well, thanks very much for having me today. I'm looking forward to it.
1: Well, uh, Charles, uh, if, if it's all right with you, let's get started by getting to, to know a little bit more about your path and how you became the director of the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center.
2: Uh, well, I guess I should talk about the estuary since you described me as pelagic, but um, <laughs> it, you know, it, it's a it's a long path, but uh, the short story is I've spent about uh, 25 years in the field of coastal management and uh, in recent years had an opportunity to come to UC Santa Barbara to, as you said, uh, reinvigorate the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center, uh, but that um, path really begins with my interdisciplinary background in geochemistry as an undergraduate where i first learned about climate change back in the 80s into uh, interest in social science and law in graduate school at berkeley and then uh, ultimately after a few years at the university of colorado in boulder coming back to california to work with the california coastal commission for about 20 years and uh, i spent a couple decades working on Coastal planning, coastal management, regulation, of course, of development along California's coast, eventually becoming the director of that state agency for about five years. Uh, And then after leaving the Coastal Commission, uh, ended up at Santa Barbara a couple of years ago.
0: Well, I can appreciate the difficult job you had at the California Coastal Commission, uh, Dr. Lester. I I had the... uh, privilege i guess of leading or co-directing the texas coastal management program for a period of time back in the uh the 90s and uh it is a challenging job uh, the california coastal commission i believe is well known probably to all of our listeners around the country it is famed for its uh, progressive mindset toward public access and management of the california shoreline uh, would you mind telling us a little bit about your tenure there uh, and maybe introduce our audience to a, a more, uh, maybe a, a more full understanding of what the California Coastal Commission really is and what it does.
2: Yeah, sure. Um, well, you're right. It's uh, It was a challenging time. And um, at the same time, I was never bored. And, you know, one of the reasons for that is because agencies like the Coastal Commission and the agency you were involved with in Texas, you know, they're working right along this margin where all these things come together these great confluences of land and sea and people and the environment and economy versus protection of resources and so you know these uh challenges are there that are are at once um sometimes highly contentious but also uh, bringing together all of these different forces and so they're complicated and it takes a lot of problem solving And that's why You know, it was such an interesting time, but the Coastal Commission itself in California uh, is coming up on about 50 years of um, being in existence, managing questions and issues along the coast, and it originates in uh, a people's movement, a citizen's movement to protect the coast. And at the time, in the late 60s and early 70s, uh, really in the beginning of the modern environmental movement people in California were concerned about losing public access to the shoreline because development was sprawling out and blocking their ability to get to the shoreline they were concerned about the loss of wetlands they were concerned about industrial development proposals like more oil and gas and nuclear power plants and all kinds of uh, industrial facilities on what had been previously undeveloped sections of the coast so all of these things kind of came together uh, in the early seventies to lead to what was uh, known as proposition 20, which created the first iteration of the coastal commission. And subsequent to that, the state legislature then passed a state law, the California coastal act, which laid out these statewide policies, things that everybody in California cared about protection of public access and recreation protection of sensitive wetlands and habitats, uh, amazing, agricultural and rural landscapes that we didn't want to see degraded any further but also providing for uh, land uses and developments that had to be on the coast like uh, boating and fishing facilities you know things that were quote quote unquote coastal dependent Mm -hmm. so we put in place this state law to protect these resources and the main mechanism that California chose to do that was in partnership with local government so the, the state law imagines that these statewide concerns will be implemented locally through local land use planning and regulation. And that was the other key piece of the Coastal Act, which was a permit requirement for new development. So, you know, that creation of that agency really set in in motion this dynamic that continues today between state and local interests, between environmental and economic interests, and all with the idea of we need to somehow figure out how to live sustainably along this dynamic shoreline.
1: Uh, Dr. Lester, uh, this is probably a hard question to answer, but I'm just genuinely curious if you have one. But uh, you you mentioned that you were the fourth uh, director of the Coastal Commission. And I'm wondering um, if you could characterize like, um, that era of your leadership in any, in any particular way?
2: Uh, well, that's a great question. We could probably do three or four podcasts about some of that, but, um, the, you know, as you say, there were three directors, um, previous to me becoming the director and, uh, the, my predecessor, Peter Douglas, um, actually was the director for 25 years. And so, uh, you know, he, he is a, a very charismatic leader and put, you know, quite a amazing uh, imprint on California coastal management, California politics, the coastline itself, and of course the agency, um, you know, tremendously influential. So, you know, when I was uh, selected by the Coastal Commission to be the next director, uh, and it is a political appointment, that position, um, by the commissioners themselves. Um, you know one of my immediate concerns was simply to maintain stability of the agency moving forward out of the tenure of this incredible leader that we had had for so many years and so you can imagine the, um, the nature of some of the challenges and just keeping the agency focused on its mission and making sure the staff was still feeling um, good about the uh, nature of the agency at the time and um, how it was being perceived by the you know the outside world, and so there, a lot of my time and attention went into that transition period. Uh, first thing, um, but you know beyond that, there were uh, a number of issues, and one in particular that I was focused on uh, trying to move us forward all on, and in particular, that was climate change and sea level rise. And so, you know, one of my immediate uh, things that I focused on was to begin building a more comprehensive program within the agency and in relationship to our partners in the local government and in Sacramento oh, on the issue of sea level rise and adaptation.
0: Uh, Dr. Lester, and, and you mentioned that the the uh, California Coastal Act, I, 1970, remind me. 1976 was the
2: Coastal Act.
0: 1976, the agency about 50 years old now uh were tell us about your tenure what year were you serving as the director of the california coastal commission what years
2: uh so i was appointed in 2011 and left in 2016. okay and so uh it's been about five years now since i was there um and as I said, one of the first things we did was to, uh, one, update our strategic plan, which had not been updated for about 15 years, and related directly related to that, focus on the question of how are we going to adapt to this uh, thing that's coming down the, literally along the coast, yeah. climate change and sea level rise, yep. uh, and be prepared to take on all of the things that that's going to bring with it, like increased erosion and increased flooding and increased threats to our development immediately along the shoreline and resources, wetlands and things like that. And so we went to Sacramento and we made the case that we really needed an increase in our budget, not just to support new planning and regulatory work at the commission itself, but also to help local governments begin to plan for sea level rise. So a lot of my um, initial time in that five year period as director was focused on getting that new investment and new political support for responding to sea level rise up and running. And we were successful in in getting a grant program going uh, that would enable local governments to start to understand what their vulnerabilities were in relationship to sea level rise. And so there was a grant program put in place In 2013, 2014. And subsequent to that, we've now seen six rounds of grant funding from the state to local governments to do sea level rise adaptation planning, uh, including vulnerability assessments and uh, identifying strategies or or what are we going to do about these future vulnerabilities?
0: Yeah. And you know, it's. Well, I'm I'm just saying that, that in 2011, when you take over as director, Uh, taking a hard look at climate change and the new risks to the shoreline and shoreline communities from sea level rise. You were a little bit ahead of your time, I would say. A little bit. I would 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 say say around the country significantly (laughs) in taking the initiative and and getting the uh, California legislature to put some money behind the risks uh, and the challenges ahead. Uh, Turned out to be pre I would say. Those risks and concerns have proven to be real. I'm thinking, Tyler, what it would be like to Follow a director douglas who held who held the reins for twenty five years. I'm thinking of a sports analogy when you come in as the coach, following a legendary
1: no i, I leader think, what oh, anyway. i th- I think you're going at like you're uh, you're the dude that's coming in to replace Rogers. Is that yeah? <laughs> you know, and it's you're just coming in to replace some sort of iconic right. uh, QB, and yeah, and the best you can do. I mean, you got to you got to be good. I mean, the expectations are high. That's right. Stabilize it. Advance the cause. Uh, so you leave in
0: '26. I think that I appreciate the the description you gave of the California Coastal Commission and how it relates to local government, uh, local coastal planning. Uh, this distributed model of coastal management is common around the country, uh, and it's essential, really, to have that, uh, that local leadership and buy-in uh, to tackle these complicated problems. Can you talk about what makes that process successful uh, in the relationship between the commission at the state level in local communities, when it comes to the complicated issues on the coast,
2: it's uh, a great question. I was still reflecting on some of your sports analogies. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to think even of even if you're good, it's hard to uh, convince people who like the last quarterback that you still should be the quarterback. That's anyway, true. <laughs> so anyway, uh, you uh, you know what's successful? You know that one of the reasons I loved working with the Coastal Commission and still love this uh, field of work is because of that tension between. Uh, the larger public interest and doing the right thing on the ground at the local level in local context. And that's you know, a tension that animates all um, you know, all coastal management agencies, not just in the United States but everywhere, but how do you um, accomplish things that are of, of larger interest to a larger population, but also don't completely shut down what makes local communities thrive? And so that, that tension and that balance is what the Coastal Act was trying to achieve by putting in place this process that says, okay, here's a, here's a statewide rule, we want to protect public access, but we want you to do it through a local regulatory process. Well, what does that mean? Well, you have to get the local governments to uh, embrace that local objective in some fundamental way first, and then you have to work together closely and early in any kind of process that might get started in order to, to find uh, the common ground and the way to um, craft proposals and solutions that recognize both local and statewide needs or the larger and the and the smaller interests in play. And in my experience, you know, that the successful processes are ones where people can um, move outside of their comfort zones a little bit and be a little more creative and try to find solutions that still embody their core interests, but that also let go of things that aren't as critical to you know achieving that basic outcome. So you know a couple examples. Um, you know one of the great, Um, successes I would say that uh, had during my time and it really begins before I become director but when I was the district director in the central coast was working with people at the Pebble Beach Corporation and Del Monte Forest with a major uh, final kind of build-out plan for their land and of course they have uh, seven golf courses major you know renowned golf courses uh, along that section of coast yep and we were confronted with a proposal to have to build another golf course. Uh, but from an our standpoint, that golf course was going to have very significant impacts on one of the most sensitive habitat areas along California's coast, which is this native Monterey pine forest that's uh, indigenous to that area or endemic to the Monterey Peninsula. So, we got into a pretty big conflict, and it went on for arguably, you know, decades from when the first plan for Pebble Beach was done in the 80s into the 90s and the the 2000s, where we just couldn't agree on that golf course proposal. And ultimately, the Coastal Commission uh, denied that plan uh, in the late 2000s, 2007, I think. And we went back to the table with the folks at Pebble Beach, and we just spent a couple of years, literally hammering out a proposal that we could both live with. And that ended up being a, not a proposal with a golf course, but a proposal that did include a new smaller um, visitor serving inn of about 100 units uh, that would be located in a place that was not problematic from, from our perspective. And that also provided Pebble Beach you know, something for their bottom line you know, that would contribute to their economic goals. And their visitor serving goals so we found a way to work that out we brought it back to the Commission and it was the unanimous approval uh, and that plan has been underway now for a number of years but it really took sitting down at the table and hashing it out and seeing what you could um, you know compromise on to get to that point you know so often in these um, state and local processes in in my view, things kind of spin out of control and they get caught up in this more politicized media uh, framework where issues get oversimplified. And uh, agencies, particularly state and local agencies, are not uh, they don't have enough resources to spend the time needed to try to figure out these problems. And when you get into that context, then you know all bets are off because it's much more easy to return to your corner and stick to your guns and your um, position, as might be spelled out in the law, than it is to take the time to spend at the table up front early talking through a problem. And that's uh, kind of, you know, it's not rocket science, but in my experience, that's what it takes.
1: That's very interesting. And it, it, uh, I, I'm reminded of your um, kind of legal background that you, you uh, got a JD. <laughs> Um, and I wanted to ask about that, uh, you know, I mentioned earlier this pelagic mindedness, uh, trait that, that I, I think you have, but, um, you know, geochemistry, uh, to a law degree. Can you talk a little bit about how both of those, um, ways of thinking kind of served you as you are working with, say the Pebble Beach, uh, company here?
2: Yeah, sure. Um, You know, the geochemistry was sort of the culmination of um, my early beginnings as a science person, you know, a a microscope nerd as a little kid and um, really interested in the natural world and um, exposure to Rachel Carson's work and just thinking about science and and physics and those sorts of things. and so I was science-minded and as I mentioned at the outset, um, that was the first time I learned about CO2 emissions and climate change back in 82, 83, uh, when we've had our first wave of concern about global warming in the in the 1980s. But that science background, um, you know, ultimately I decided I didn't wanna pursue a, an advanced degree in the hard sciences, but was more interested in social Uh, issues and uh, environmental policy and environmental law uh, dealing with those you know human challenges we have Mm -hmm. in relationship to the environment so you know my science background has been really important in terms of um, enabling me to work with issues that are inherently rooted in understanding scientific uh, you know processes and dynamics and so I've carried that through and climate change and sea level rise is just one of those examples where uh, we can't address that problem unless we ground ourselves in the science. And so working with the Pebble Beach case, for example, was um, on one hand uh, issues that we were raising about the science of the ecological importance of this particular kind of habitat type and the species involved and the role it plays along our coast. So grounding our positions in science, why do you want to protect this? Well, because it's important for the following reasons, and we've got the science here to back that up. Yeah, um, the law degree, uh, you know, was uh, became the mechanism in my professional um, level um, academic training. In addition to a Ph.D., it was a, a joint program that I did uh, where I. Um, studied offshore oil development and the policy and the politics and the administrative law that uh, shaped how offshore oil development decisions were being made in the United States, but bringing again science and environmental understandings to a really complicated political and policy problem. And so I was fascinated with, well, what are the, uh, how do do we um, realize our, Desire to protect these larger public interests through public decisions and law. And so public law became one of the main things that I was interested in understanding. And of course, that um, was a critical part of my effectiveness as as an employee with the state of California and the Coastal Commission. Right. Because as you, I think you were implicitly recognizing, the Coastal Commission has always been out on the um, leading edge of some of these issues, and yeah. they haven't shied away from issues, and being very progressive and legally minded has always been a part of that state program. So my ability to work with the legal system and understand where lawyers might be coming from uh, was important to my being able to successfully work with others also. Uh, I, um, You know, I, I, I just
0: got to say, I, I really appreciate that storyline and that combination, I'll have to say, uh, just as an aside, my background, undergraduate degree in marine biology and then environmental law at Lewis and Clark, was a similar uh, pathway of having enough Mm -hmm. technical understanding to contend with the issues and the subject matter and then the legal training to contend with the public forum that all of this gets resolved in and the legal structures you have to do. It's such a delicate balance that you're talking about. I loved the story about the Pebble Beach Golf Course and the Monterey Pine Forest and the courage that the California Coastal Commission did, had in, in denying that original permit and really pushing the issue to come to a different resolution uh, says something special about the California Coastal Commission. Uh, that is not an easy thing to do. Uh, we're dealing with some of the most powerful economic interests that you can find in the United States here and uh, significant economic values and, and tremendous public interest values. And this is high-stakes stuff. And I, I want to emphasize that because the listeners around the country who are, are, are folks that listen from the engineering perspective or in the technical sciences uh, may not fully appreciate the complexity of these issues and what I think is one of the highest skills in in governing is coastal issues because of the difficult complexity and the overlap of interest. It's just tremendously challenging. And what a great story to have uh, worked through that issue. I, I want to ask one thing before we leave the California Coastal Commission and talk about the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center where you are now. But I'm wondering, having served in it and uh at, at the staff level up through director level. Um, if you were to give it a grade on a scale of one to 10, uh, how do you think the coastal act has, has worked out? Uh, has it fulfilled its purpose? Are there weaknesses in it at this point? What's your general assessment as if you can, looking back on the the structure of the regulatory system for the California coastal program?
2: Uh, that's a complicated question too. Yeah. Um, you know, I had, uh, and one, and from one standpoint, I'd give it an A, um, because uh, it set out this pretty uh, lofty set of goals in the 70s. And um, as I've written elsewhere, uh, it stuck to its guns in a number of policy areas and has uh, really achieved a lot. Um, one example is, uh, gro- we don't talk a lot about it, but growth management and just controlling the sprawl of development along our shorelines was one of the core policies of the Act Um, but it was a pretty straightforward idea it said um, new development should be directed to areas that are already developed and you should protect the rural and undeveloped areas of the coastline around that Hmm. and so the Coastal Commission did a pretty good job of that north of Santa Barbara and of course south of Santa Barbara was pretty much um, planned out and developed in large part by the time we put the Coastal Act in place. So a lot of this success can be seen in places like uh, the small communities along San Luis Obispo's coast, Cayucos and Cambria, uh, Morro Bay, uh, into Santa Cruz County and up into Marin and Sonoma County, where if you look at these, communities they basically have the same urban footprint that they had 40 50 years ago and that's because the coastal commission put in place a set of rules with local government through the local land use plans that said here's the urban area you can build in here and here's the rural area and we're not going to allow you to do the kind of uh, subdivision and sprawling development outside this boundary Hmm. and they you're right it does take Um, a certain amount of political courage and sticking to the rules, but that's mostly what the Coastal Commission did over the years. And over time, the land use uh, system and the land use industry adapted to those rules so that uh, it began to work in conjunction with the the conservation interests, like all of these um, local land use conservancies, for example, that now found a marketplace for protecting land as opposed to developing land and so in the big picture the enforcement of this rule about urban area rural area led to uh, or enabled the conditions for successfully keeping those footprints the same that's one success story that's tremendous tremendous from, from another standpoint though I would give it a an A minus or B plus or maybe even a B because we're now beginning to, and this maybe this is a segue to the next thing you want to talk about, but you know, we haven't been entirely successful in, in protecting all of the things that we supposedly cared about along the coast, and in particular, uh, the ability for all people to live and enjoy the, the coastal zone, to have affordable housing, to feel like we have an equitable... Distribution of access to these resources, uh, because you know any good economist will tell you if you restrict supply, then uh, your prices are going to go up. And I think one of the um, weaknesses of the coastal program has been the inability to stop the gentrification of a lot of our coastal areas uh, and the increasing, um, you know, the lack of affordability of a lot of these places. Um, but even that, you know, there's a whole other story about that because the original Coastal Act did include a requirement to provide affordable housing, but the Coastal Commission, in its early tradition, of course, uh, enforced that, and they were requiring inclusionary housing with any new significant development in the coast. And by that I mean, if a developer came in and said, "I want to build a hundred-unit apartments," the Coastal Commission said, "Great, make twenty of those units affordable." And they just mandated it. Wow. Well, the legislature and local government um, didn't really like that so much. And so after the first three or four years, they amended the Coastal Act to remove that provision. And ever since then, affordable housing has not really been in the, the bailiwick of the Coastal Commission. So it's not entirely a failure of the Coastal Act as opposed to the political... Economy system.
1: Well, that is very interesting and uh, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Californian here telling you That california is a I don't want to say it's a tornado It's a swirling (laughs) vortex ladies and gentlemen. It is. It is gnarly would might be the right word You know, southern california you if you were to start down in in the south peter, uh, san diego You know and and charles feel free to to color this in i'm giving kind of my Amateur hour, just, you know, watercolor here. But, you know, down south tends to be a little bit more conservative. A lot of military stuff down there in San Diego. Of course, gorgeous uh, coastlines, iconic areas. And then as you come up into Los Angeles, uh, there's some conservative areas there. You get into Ventura County, north of L.A. County. That's, of course, where I'm from. Peter, we've spent some time out there. Beautiful place. Old oil area. And, by the way, holds the mark as the most... Uh, armored county on the uh, California coast. Uh, And then, you know, you get up, uh, Charles mentioned Santa Barbara kind of being this inflection point. Uh, North of there, you know, there's the city of San Francisco, but it's it's much less developed along the shoreline. So there's like a heavily, I mean, it's a big shoreline. So a lot of political differences between the regions. Oh, totally. You get up north, ladies and gentlemen, everybody knows about the reputation of, of Northern California. Yeah. Um, So they got the Redwoods, you know, it's a big thing. (laughs) Well, it is.
2: You know, what's interesting about that is when the Coastal Act was first passed, or Proposition 20 was first passed, it was the northern three counties of California that did not uh, vote for Proposition 20. Interesting. Because at the time, you know, there was was a lot of resource-based industry, logging, commercial fishing, and there was concern that this new state agency would, you know, be bad for those industries along the coast, as opposed to places like the Bay Area, of course, was ground zero for support for the act, but so was Santa Barbara County, so was Los Angeles County, Um, and even the coastal counties, Orange and San Diego, voted for the act, uh, just not as in greatest percentages.
0: Well, Charles, I think uh, I'd like to talk about, let's shift gears to your current exercise now as the director of the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center at UC Santa Barbara, uh, an organization that is recently coming back into full life. Uh, Tell us about the center and what uh, attracted you to become the executive, the director of this thing.
2: Uh, Well, you know, Santa Barbara, as you mentioned at the beginning, um, has had a marine science institute for many decades and uh, has a tremendous uh, reputation in history for doing uh, cutting-edge marine and coastal science and um, contributing to policy discussions like the offshore oil debate and um, you know more recently things like uh, aquaculture and understanding how the dynamics of uh, the sea and the marine ecosystems influence or shape our abilities to. manage fisheries and all of these sorts of things. So a huge um, tradition there, and that was appealing to me, of course, partly because of my science background, but to be in, um, involved with and working with people who have a love for the coast and the ocean and are uh, scientists is you know, really exciting. Uh, the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center itself has been around for a while, since the mid-'80s, um, it was actually my um one of my uh, phd committee faculty members who was one of the founding members or director of the center biliana sis insane who's since passed on but um, it's kind of a coincidence that i'm back to this uh, place where she was involved Uh, she was at santa barbara in the 80s and started this center and the idea is to um, have a place where uh, we can Focus more particularly on the policy issues and needs in the area of ocean and coastal management, and in, in my case, you know, specifically focusing in on coastal management. But uh, the opportunity to go down to Santa Barbara came up uh, in the last several years, and I jumped at it um, because it was a um, I'd, I'd had an academic background and had spent some time at the university and. Uh, you know, a long time with the state of California and the Coastal Commission. And even though, you know, I wasn't quite ready to maybe end that phase of my career. 20 years is a long time doing that, as you say, even though it was exciting. It's also, um, you know, there's a downside to being on a monthly production cycle for staff reports where you've got always got conflict involved. So this opportunity to work at the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center and um, bring the knowledge that I have that's grounded in actual application and and experiences and start to reflect on those and build upon them in a way that can contribute to the policy problems and challenges we're now facing is, is just a really um, great opportunity for me.
1: Well, it sounds fascinating. Peter, we cover on Coastal News today... Perfect fit. Oh, totally perfect fit. We cover on Coastal News today uh, so many of the the plethora of interesting coastal issues going on in California, all sorts of stuff. Um, But Charles, what, what has your attention at the moment? What are some areas of focus that you're really trying to move the needle on?
2: Well, so I'm, I'm really still um, deeply involved with this idea of um, how do we deal with sea level rise and what are the implications of sea level rise and climate change for the coastal management work we've been doing and what we need to do going forward. And so coming out of that work with the commission where we put in place a planning program and we developed a uh, comprehensive sea level rise guidance for local governments and developers, that that was just the beginning of uh, really trying to figure out, well, what, what are we gonna do as the seas continue to rise? Um, particularly given some of the more uh, high-end projections that are possibilities out there right and so you take the issue of public access for example and you know i i've still remain really interested in understanding how we continue to protect and provide this amazing shoreline space public space for everyone while uh, working with the people's desire to live and build and use the economy along the shoreline right that that huge tension well we've spent 40 or 50 years in California protecting these beach spaces including by requiring in a very legalistic way private property owners to literally dedicate beach shoreline area to the public and now we're facing a situation where those places might literally be underwater in a few decades because of sea level rise. And so all of this work we've done, the the regulation, the legal battles, the working with state and local government dynamics, all of that is at risk. And we need to figure out ways to um, adapt at the community level that will maximize our opportunities to have these amazing public spaces going forward.
0: Let's Let's talk about, I think that is exactly the the $64,000 or in this case maybe $64 million question what are we going to do A billion. <laughs> and yeah billion in the in, in in California and this the vivid examples of this 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 policy reconciliation balance you're talking about between the interest in the public's access to the shoreline and the economic interest of upland development it, there's only there's very few places that I think vividly bring that into focus, like California. And I'm thinking of this uh, Solana uh, Coast situation and these cliff faces where mm-hmm. there's a real effort in California to try to figure out how to prevent these structures in, in these from falling into the sea as these uh, sea cliffs retreat. There's an armoring initiative here. There's some very t- difficult issues. And as sea levels rise and and consume the beach this is the true test of can these things be reconciled because sea level rise will at some point if the shoreline is armored consume the public beach i mean what do you you said what are we going to do what do you do uh, charles what how do you deal with something like this it seems intractable and i know it's not but man is this a tough one
2: well, yeah, it is, um, and in, in some contexts, it may be intractable. The, uh, you know the, the law in California has been such that um, early on, there was a distinction made between the need to protect development that was already on the coast, recognizing that it was there and had not been subject to the coastal act before. Um, right. We need to do that versus our desire to not have a proliferation of seawalls and armoring along these you know, amazing shorelines that we were trying to protect. And so there were two ideas in the act, and that tension has been really hard to um, implement over the years, in part because in places like Solana Beach, uh, most of that development that you see along those high cliffs was already in place or... Largely planned out when we adopted the Coastal Act, so it fell into this box of it's already there. We're not going to say no, you can't protect it once the erosion starts to undermine your cliff, or your backyard. Right. right. Um, at the same time, uh, we we want to protect that beach, uh, and yeah. there has been beach replenishment in that area, for example, trying to add back, um, you know, something on the East Coast is much more has much more history and experience with in california but still we've been doing it in californian places uh they've tried to do that but we also could not say no to the seawalls that were being asked for under the law and you're right the um, physical the geophysical reality of that when you fix the back of the beach the beach is an eroding or a receding shoreline the inevitable outcome is the loss of the beach the space in between the water and the wall and that's what's going to happen yeah. and not just in Solana Beach anywhere we've built out these back hardened back shorelines so you know now we're in a position of trying to figure out well what what are our alternatives for maintaining a beach in Solana Beach if that's what we want
1: well, well we
2: could try to add sand to it for uh, a number of years but some of our best science right now is saying that may um, hold off the inevitable for a while but it's still gonna you know be overtaken by sea level rise at some point and that's just running the models and projecting out how much you can elevate the beach versus the the rising sea levels and seeing how long you can do that um, the alternative is to try to figure out how to have a retreating shoreline, a dynamic shoreline. And you know, if we were on video, you would see me with my <laughs> hands sort of measuring out the width of the beach and saying, all things being equal, if you don't fix the back of the beach, that space is going to move inland with the rising tide. And we would have a beach, assuming the back of the beach could keep pace with the rising tide rates. Uh, But when we fix that, you know, you lose that ability. So I think for California, it's going to be about, um, you know, we're in the very early stages of trying to figure out how to do this, but about finding those places where we can allow the shoreline to continue to adapt and be dynamic in relationship to the ocean uh, in order to have beaches. Uh, We are fortunate to have a lot of places in California that aren't, urbanized that aren't developed in that way. And so, you know, I think we're still gonna have opportunities for for enjoying beaches. It's just that they may not be the ones that are most uh, close to all of our urban areas. Um, I should, you know, it's it's um, it should be qualified that all, well, a lot of this is contextual and every uh, place is different, right? And California's got a pretty varied geography diverse coastal dynamics and so you really do need to zero in on places and ask well what's going to happen here and what can we do about it and it may not be the same as another place and for example um, santa monica bay we have some very large beaches right now venice beach santa monica beach you know all around the la metropolitan area
0: yeah and at least right
2: now the science shows us that those beaches are going to be around for a while even with sea level rise so you know maybe it's not an immediate concern um but 50 60 70 80 years from now uh it will be um
1: i so uh the retreat question i think is just peter we talk about this all the time because it always comes down to a buyout doesn't it i mean you're gonna need to uh take uh buy own the state the public needs to go back and acquire these lands so that the beach can do its natural wild process. And um, Charles, uh, before we recorded, we I reached out to one of our great hosts here on ASPN, Leslie Ewing, who worked for you for a while. And she asked me to ask you a question. She said, what are the best triggers that you would recommend for managed retreat on sections of the coast highway, like in Big Sur, or areas that are currently being affected by landslides? That's a good question. And I have a feeling she knows maybe where you're going to go with this, <laughs> but I don't. I honestly don't. But my, um, have you have you given any thought with your legal hat on to how we might approach this from, from the state's perspective, from the public's perspective? Because it really is a problem. I don't want to live, I mean, I don't currently live in California, but in my hypothetical future, if I were, I wouldn't want to live in, say, Ventura, where it's just an armored thing up to the highway that sounds that sounds stupid so Mm. what do you think about this
2: so the best triggers for managed retreat um, yeah in big sur huh or anywhere
1: she, she well, says, first, think... like in Big Sur and areas that are now closed due to landslides, is her... Uh... Uh-huh. Yeah. The, the, yeah. Uh, yeah the...
2: Well, that's a great question. First thing I should say is, you know, one of the great things I learned from Leslie was there's always a crane big enough. <laughs> that, was in a, that was in a case where we were um, telling a, a hotel that they couldn't keep the revetment that they'd put down in a storm uh, because it wasn't necessary and there were some other legal problems with it so we ordered them to take it out and they told us "Well, we can't the rocks you know there's no way to do it there's not a crane and leslie you know amazing career as a coastal engineer explained to me well now they can get a crane to do that <laughs> and, and you know yeah they did they took it out wow so that's awesome. en- engineers are amazing um you know this problem of landslides is a is a gnarly one and um we have a couple cases uh in california where where we've dealt with it and the triggers, you know, that's a great question because you know, one of our best examples may be um, the Devil's Slide area just south of San Francisco. If you've been there, yeah. um, Highway One uh, went down the coast and across this area known as Devil's Slide, and it was had that name in part because you know it was very steep and very unstable, still is and would periodically fall away and the highway would be closed Uh, and this was the only route between uh, the more urban metropolitan area of san francisco and the san mateo coastline so heading on down into half moon bay for example the only real way to get there from san francisco other than uh, the route from the south coming over from the from the bay um area so a really important route but it was always being closed and it always cost millions of dollars to figure out how to get it open again and so eventually um, alternatives were proposed for realigning the highway and uh, some of those alternatives were inland and up over ridgelines and had all kinds of environmental impacts and so a political coalition formed and over several decades eventually uh, the political system came to embrace a tunnel Hmm. and you know that cost a lot too but uh, as a collective we decided in that particular area to um, build a tunnel and no longer use the highway one portion going through Devil's slide the triggers for that I think were the the incredible costs and emergency response and ongoing need to keep highway one open so you know, a real economic concern about this highway being constantly closed or at risk, um, and then um, the ability to invest in another alternative. But the trigger was, you know, the pressure to to do something more than continual emergency response. Uh, you know, that's I think a little different than the kind of triggers that we're starting to talk about in adaptation planning in California. Uh, in this rubric of pathways adaptation pathways and so um, my own view is that it's it's great to talk about triggers um, and we do need to think about when do we start to act to make changes but one of the first things that we also need to keep our eye on is well what are we trying to accomplish and that's the uh, challenging part of the decision process that you've been talking about which is reaching agreement on what are we trying to achieve right and so if you if you say I don't want to live in a place that doesn't have beaches well then you, you want to have beaches well how do we get beaches and that's the thing we need to focus on and ask ourselves what are the triggers for actions that will enable beaches to persist one of the things that people are looking at locally, and I think the um, city of Santa Cruz has done this, a number of local governments have started to put this into their adaptation plans, which is simply identifying beach widths and then keeping an eye on them over time. And at some point, your beach is going to get narrow enough that you're, you need to take some actions if it's going to continue to survive as a beach. But right now, many local governments are um planning out those actions as beach replenishment so when our 100 feet foot wide beach gets down to 50 feet we need to implement a beach replenishment program and build it back up to
1: x do you, do you uh, think that that's I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt uh yeah, okay, charles but do you think that that is realistic um i real in i realize that this has to do with forecasts of sea level rise and that there's a, a range but um you, you know uh we have done shows in the past on ASPN about uh, the history of beach nourishment and California in the early days actually has a pretty robust history of beach nourishment. Um, mm-hmm. growing up, you know, in the Ventura coastal area, I never recall ever, a a a, a dredge, you know, B, right. BDUM project on a Ventura shoreline. I do know that it ha- occurs, um, with, uh, the dredging of some of those harbors and ports and stuff, but, um, is it realistic to you know if you're uh if you own a beach house on faria beach uh in ventura county and you got a big old seawall the beach is getting smaller it's the the wall is perpetuating the issue uh maybe somewhere out there in your mind you're thinking you know what would fix this problem is if they pumped a bunch of sand in front of my place and then we'll be set for another i don't know 20 years or something is that is that even in the cards is that reasonable to you
2: well my own view is that it's not really a viable long-run plan Um, you know we do we you're right we do have a lot of opportunistic uh, um, replenishment and um, use of dredging dredge spoils and things to um, try to maintain some beach areas uh, and some larger replenishment projects but you know the science is showing us that uh, that's not likely to be successful over the long long run with sea level rise And also, you know, just the cost of that, as as you alluded to on the East Coast of the repetitive dredging and the need to maintain those. Um, Right now in California, with these adaptation plans that are underway, it's just planning and and ideas. Okay, in 20 or 30 years, we'll do a beach replenishment project. But Mm -hmm. I don't think we have any knowledge or confidence that we'll be able to actually do that, find the sand, uh, where is it going to come from? How is it going to be implemented? Who's going to pay for it? Yep. Is it going to last? And you know, I'll I'll point you to a major case that we worked on uh, when I was the director of the Coastal Commission at Broad Beach in Malibu, and you know, this is a really interesting case because, like some other communities, and in particular on Long Island, um, the there are about eighty to a hundred homeowners on on Broad Beach who needed to put down a revetment to protect them and their backyards and these septic tanks that are out on the beach side um, in 2009 2010 el nino year Mm -hmm. and they put down an emergency revetment Uh, it's still there by the way 11 years later Um, they came to the coastal commission as they're required to for a follow-up permit to figure out what to do Um, to their credit and i always gave this credit, which was um, they organized themselves to create what's called the Geological Hazard Abatement District, uh, Great. a governmental uh, option in California, uh, and assessed themselves a fee to pay for a beach replenishment program. And their proposal was to build back the beach, uh, cover the revetment up with sand, and restore it to uh, you know a, hmm. a living shoreline dune field. Um, and that—that's what they would maintain, thereby providing both protection for themselves right. and the public beach. I'd
0: give them credit, the you know, for that initiative and that f- basic yeah. idea, that, and the ability and the willingness. I would say to put to some money for it. to pay for it, to put some money on the table. Yeah. That now yeah. we're talking. Now we're talking about something.
2: How did it play? And so yeah. that was great. We approved that plan in yeah. 2014, 2015, and um, six years later, it's still not been implemented. Um, I don't know whether it will be. I know there's been talk about changing it. Um, in, the me- in the intervening years, there was a struggle to figure out where is the sand going to come from. Right. So they went through a number of iterations looking for dredging sources of dredge sands, um, eventually ending up with an inland quarry source of sand. Oh, interesting. Which would involve thousands of truck trips over yeah. from Ventura County down to Malibu. Uh, there was litigation with the, the smaller communities through which these trucks would go, uh, eventually being resolved in favor of the project. Hmm. Uh, and then there was infighting among the homeowners about how much it was costing and the fact that their assessment kept going up yeah. for to implement this project. Yeah. So you know all of these factors come together to make it tremendously complicated to do. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, granted, may, you know, it makes it maybe a, a core project across a region would be easier. Right. You, know, well, you know,
0: I just had to ask you, because this the, just the complexity of these issues and the intricacy, the trucking, I could imagine uh, truck hauling, I don't know, hundreds of thousands of sand through Malibu yeah. would be a real popular idea. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I, one of my favorite people who are, is a provocateur, I would say, I hope he doesn't I take this as an offense, but Dr. Rob Young out uh at the, uh, the Program for the Study of Developed Shorelines at Western Carolina University, it speaks often. And Tyler and I have had uh, Rob oh, well. Young on the, on the show a couple of times. And, you know, I'm hoping Rob is going to have a podcast because I want to hear from this perspective on how we manage this particular issue. And, man, you guys would be a great duo because I think you're both trying to think through the same things. Uh, in a in a very different you know set of geof- geological s- spaces,
2: but well, Rob, Rob's great. I, yeah, you know, I love he, Rob. I, just, I would say it's good trouble that he's creating. Yeah,
0: good trouble he's creating. Um, but
2: the, we've been on panels together. Have you? We're, we were just conversing actually online about trying to um, get something going between the East and West Coast.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, this is a question I want to ask as as a person who's been in the catbird seat here and and struggled through these issues with at the state level and in state legislature, on the commission, and down to the local government level. This is kind of the whole spectrum of implementation. Uh, You get a feel for how this may or may not be done. Uh, There's so much political energy uh, necessary to to execute solutions, whatever variety of outcome is desired. Uh, The question I have is, is it too soon for us, And I say this us as Americans and and communities around the American shoreline. Is it too soon for us to start figuring out two things? How can we put in the bank, you know, 100 or 200 million dollars, say, for the state of California, that would be not enough. But put together a chunk of money for buyouts and then figure out, this is my big question for you as a lawyer, how the hell do we legally execute? How do you compel a person to sell? How do you, we know we're talking about an eminent domain. We know we're talking about just incredible transaction costs lot by lot. That's not going to work. I mean, how do we, if we wanted to, on Solana Beach, if we wanted to take the front row houses off the top of that cliff so that the, we're just not under so much pressure to armor the hell out of it, um, how do we legally get through that and is that a subject i wish the center would take this up somebody needs to figure this out because we do not have a way to do this yet just what's your comment on that
2: uh well you got all the great questions um <laughs> i mean i really you know a couple things one is on the on the money side um you know seven or eight years ago i remember We were doing a presentation about sea level rise guidance maybe to the commission and i and i suggested to the commission that we're going to need this is going to need big money right adaptation is expensive Uh, and we're going to need a bond uh, probably to fund that and california you know if you don't know uses bond funding a lot to pay for um, all kinds of things Um, so this year uh, it's actually been delayed a year or so by the pandemic but this year back on the ballot will be a major bond that will include major funding for climate adaptation really Uh, fantastic news california like it with it's done on the greenhouse gas side is is trying to move that ball forward and recognizing that we're going to need significant investment to respond Um, not just planning but paying for the projects and the adaptation and strategies whatever those might be also on the uh in the legislature this spring is a bill that would actually provide funding for buyouts really and the way it would it it's uh, i'd have to go back and look at the details but generally it was what's called a um, buy lease back program so okay it would provide funding to local governments to acquire properties uh, that were in these vulnerable places and then those places could be leased back to the property owners. That's good. Uh, And and this is a proposal that's been around for a while uh, as a mechanism that enables you to recognize the long-run interest of ultimately, this is not a viable location. If we want to have a beach, we're going to need to retreat, et cetera. Right. Recognize that, but also allow people to get the benefits of being there. For its useful lifetime.
0: Yeah, so a and, life yeah. estate in the good old legal world, you, you give it right, back to them exactly. and say until you die, you get to live here. But when you die, this is gone, and you're the last person to live here. And that's a that's a that's an inter- that's a great and creative uh, solution. And I have been impressed by what's happening in the California legislature with uh, Assembly Bill 67, the Sea Level Rise Preparedness Act proposal that's out there right now, and the Coastal Adaptation Permitting Act, this is Assembly Bill 72. I mean, I'm, it's so interesting to see a state, and I think you're correct, uh, getting to the point of really taking seriously this adaptation cost and starting to look at the legal structure. Um, how Do you think the center is going to play a role in trying to, to define these policy developments and get involved in the process of uh, figuring this out? It seems like a perfect I,
2: role I hope, for you guys. Yeah, I hope so. And um, one of the things that I've— um, Recently, been able to do is receive a grant from the Ocean Protection Council in California uh, to study the adaptation planning that's taking place so far along California's outer coast. And so, I'm about to launch a two year assessment of what we have done, um, both in terms of outcomes and process. So, nice, you know, wh- where are all of our local governments in this stage of planning and implementation? Um, what have been the Major decisions or outcomes, for example, are they all just saying beach replenishment, or right you know, to what extent are seawalls part of the plan? Is there any planned retreat, et cetera? Uh, and also process, so trying to understand how we're trying to accomplish this difficult set of decisions that you were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. uh, and what works better and what doesn't. So I hope that study is going to um, really. Inform what we are doing in California and maybe identify some things that work better than others to move us forward Um, you know, I have my own thoughts and strong ideas also on on these questions as you as you see but um, in particular on the one that you raised a minute ago about eminent domain and um, public-private relationships around property. Yeah. Uh, my, you know, my own thought on that is we've, we've used eminent domain for decades, a long time, to yeah. achieve important public objectives. Yeah, and, it should be okay, you know, right? We built a highway system using eminent domain. We're using eminent domain right now in California for the high-speed rail, right? Wow. Oh, We need to put the high-speed rail there, which is a this big idea for the public transportation and climate um, goals. We need to put that where you live. Well, we have ways of dealing with that legally. Mm-hmm. Um, you you have to compensate people, but it is yeah. an option. Yeah, write a I'm check. I'm go whole hog and start buying people out, but um, I think you know we've gotten caught up a little bit in a fear of using constitutional mechanisms that we have to accomplish important objectives. Right. And we all know that um, the beach and coastal economy in California is really important. Yep. Yeah, it's a $40 billion a year economy.
1: It certainly is. And I just want to go back and clarify when I said I didn't want to live or, uh, you know, live around a Ventura <laughs> with no beach, I specifically meant a kind of wild natural shoreline. And I, I, there's just no possible way that I can imagine um, where California is. Uh, is able to adapt to rising seas, adapt to climate change um, and uh, have a natural wild coast without uh, the public reacquiring or acquiring somewhere in the toolkit, somewhere in the toolkit, it's going to come up and it's it's either going to be my generation or my children's generation or, or maybe the generation behind me or my children's generation, you know, it's going to come up and man, I'm really excited to hear how we could do that. Um, cause I think we're going to have to pull the trigger on yeah. that eventually. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I, I don't disagree. I, I do have the scientist in me wonders about some of the science that's showing sea level rise, overtaking our estuaries, for example, and maybe even overtaking our beaches, even if the cliffs are allowed to erode. Yeah. Um, And so I wonder about like the actual Mm -hmm. big physical structural changes in our shorelines in the face of sea level rise and what that will look like, even if you didn't have human development in the way. But I I think you're right. We are going to need a range of uh, tools, including this one because the alternative in my mind is going to be a lot of unplanned retreat. And we've already seen that in California, places like Pacifica where if you just kind of, you know, wait and see, and do the status quo. That geology is like impossible to stop what's happening there, and so you end up with things literally being red tagged right. and falling onto the beach below. And is that yeah. what
1: we want to do? Not yeah. a good look. You yeah, don't want to see well. the sewer pipes no. p- coming
2: out fa- of the side I think, of the cliff. I, you know, it,
0: I consider it a failure policy if that's the outcome, and that is the way a lot of retreat happens in America. It's true on the yeah. North Carolina coast, true on the Texas coast, Hawaii. Well, they're they're there until they just can't stand anymore, and then it's done. But, man, nothing good happened in the interim. The beach was detrimentally affected for decades as that process slowly ground forward. Not a good outcome. Um, Charles, I want to ask you a question. Over here in the Texas legislature's meeting right now, and there is a bill in the legislature here in Texas that is uh, underwritten and sponsored by our friends at the Pacific Legal Foundation, which I believe is a California institute, a very – Uh, assertive, I will say, private property rights protection uh, group. And the bill in the legislature here would eliminate the presumption of the public beach easement, which in Texas goes up to the line of vegetation, that when the beach is a line of vegetation, that anything seaward of that is public. Of course, the line of vegetation encroaches upon and moves across private upland property, and uh, the bill with our friends from the Pacific Legal Foundation says that it is no longer a presumption that the public has that right, that the public has to sue to reestablish that right every time the line of vegetation encroaches landward. Now, I, here's what I want to know. How do we – what's the secret of dealing with these people and who the <laughs> hell are they? Because this is absolutely a terrible who idea. And these, I, Who are these? Who guys? are these bozos? I mean, they are doing some damage. And I, I – I don't know if this bill is going to pass out of the Texas legislature, but I know they've got some horsepower behind it, and I'm just curious. What do you know about these cats?
2: Well, I've had a number of lively discussions with them over the years. Um, I can imagine you, you have. Know, they, they've been around a long time, and they're one of the main um, yeah. adjutants or uh, you know people, or groups that have opposed much of what the Coastal Commission has tried to accomplish over the years, uh, coming from a private property standpoint. And right. so. You know, a lot of the litigation that the Coastal Commission in, uh, is engaged in has, has involved PLF. Um, so, you know, they they have a very strong and um, strict interpretation of property law, and uh, do things like what you're describing, uh, which is uh, sounds like it a very pointed yeah. uh, effort to make sure that you know common property law rules and things don't play out in the favor in favor of the public going forward yeah Uh, and that's uh, you know that's unfortunate i think Uh, you know we've many some of us have talked about that provision in texas law as kind of a good example of how uh, we've established a public a presumption of public space up to the line of vegetation yeah in california the mean high tide is the legal delineation between public trust lands and private uplands. Yeah, So it's not as um, progressive as a vegetation line.
0: Uh, the, let's the Senator it, Babe Schwartz and uh, Sarah Eckhart's father is a senator now. In the Bob physics. Bob Eckhart, uh, in the 1950s, wrote that. Rolling Beach easement statute it was incredibly progressive and ahead of its time. Uh, but you know, uh, Charles, I mean, this is the problem and the difficulty of of these issues is they're so deeply embedded in the political system they are highly they can be highly ideological there's a lot of money on the table it is it takes a tremendous amount of skill and i just want to say that what the california coastal commission has done over the years i when i look in and just with great respect on some of these initiatives and decisions that the council the commission has been able to 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 do uh, it's, it's very difficult to do this stuff. And uh, I just think it's, it's, it's so great that as a former director of the California Coastal Commission, now being in this position with UC Santa Barbara and having, it's got to be a little freeing to be out of the government and to be able to think and, and say, propose policies without regard to some of that politics to really put your thinking cap on and do some great work. I just think it's really cool and I'm glad you're doing this
1: job. Me too. Me too. I, I couldn't agree, uh, Charles. What do you have to say?
2: I was just going to say thanks very much. It is, it is a great opportunity. It is freeing. Um, you know, the longer I do it, the more free I get. Good. We so, need that.
1: So Charles, look this forward
2: is a, to talking some more.
1: <laughs> absolutely. We'll have to do another show. Uh, quick, quick, This is going to be my, my quick little concluder, but uh, uh, the UCSB campus is, is beautiful as, as uh, the audience can imagine. You should Google up some pictures. Um, but uh, Charles, there's a burrito joint, uh, Free Birds Burrito, um, which okay. there's originally, I, I don't know if it's still on the UCSB or adjacent to the UCSB <laughs> campus, but there were two locations, Peter. You might not have known this. I, the, I believe the first one, or maybe the first one was in Austin, where we are. Oh. And the second one was yeah. over there because the owner's daughter went to ucsb no kidding that was what i like to vouch for up.
0: the burritos there's one near my house i'm a big <laughs> fan of uh, free birds it's great great place so there's one in uc santa barbara you should try it out charles i promise you you'll love it
2: i will i haven't been there it looks like it's still in isla vista
0: <laughs> all right well there you have it <laughs> well closing thoughts charles thank you for the time i know you've got to get to another meeting but uh, uh what, what what are closing thoughts from you
2: uh, well, you know, of course, thank you for the opportunity. I, I love talking about this stuff, and hopefully, we can do some more of it. Uh, I just would encourage people to, you know, who are interested in, in coastlines and beaches and that dynamic to really think about, uh, you know, wh- how do we find that sweet spot between these larger interests that benefit all of us and the more parochial short term interests that sometimes get in the way? and figure out how we can, you know, keep working with each other to work those things out in a way that's, you know, beneficial for the planet and all people.
0: Absolutely. That's the coin of the realm when it comes to coastal management around the American shoreline. And it's great to see the leadership in in California and your position at UC Santa Barbara uh, giving you a platform. I hope one day that Rob's podcast, which uh, I believe we're working to develop with Rob Young, is is on the network. And I'm going to tell him, you need to get Charles Lester on your first show. And you guys need to tell us some stuff. We need to hear from you guys. So I would I'd love, enjoy that. I would love to hear that. Uh, well, ladies, thanks for
2: doing what you're doing.
0: Well, it's a, it's a real privilege for us to talk to all of these brilliant people uh, who work so hard on these difficult issues. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, is Dr. Charles Lester? He is the director of the Ocean and Coastal Policy Center at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and former director of the California Coastal Commission. Uh, one of the leading thinking think tanks, I hope, is this Ocean Center on, in Santa Barbara. I'm really looking forward to following y'all's work, and uh, we'd love to have you back on from time to time to tell us about what's going on on the California coast.
2: Thank you very much.